0: Glad you tuned into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Carolyn Norma about influential feminist activists from Japanese contemporary feminist movement. Welcome to the program. Hi, Beth. Thanks so much for having me and thanks it's to fun. everyone listening. Yeah, it's great to have you. So could
1: you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Thank you. Yes, yeah, so I teach at RMIT University in Melbourne, which listeners I know will know about, and I'm in a translation and interpreting program, and that means that my second language after English is Japanese, so I first went to Japan uh, in high school, and then have been going backwards and forth and studying the language from high school all the way through university. I'm in uh, my mid-40s now, so that's a long, long time ago, and yeah, during that time, I studied Uh, Japanese history mainly, and I've done research in Japanese history uh, and as well as interpreting and translation. And my focus has been on the Japanese military so-called comfort women, prostituted women of the Second World War. And my sort of approach to that history has been one of a critique of prostitution. So a lot of the time researchers investigate the history of wartime military sexual slavery uh, from a perspective of uh, militarism or you know men's excesses in war military sexual violence but strangely enough they draw a big red line between the prostitution that men perpetrate during wartime and the the prostitution that men perpetrate during peacetime which they yeah more likely to see as sex work or some kind of voluntary chosen uh, activity of women but yeah my I'm not a philosopher, obviously, but if I had any philosoph- philosophical basis, it comes from the radical feminist thinkers who tend to focus on liberalism. So, the liberal manifestation of patriarchy in the you know the modern kind of manifestation of that, and how liberalism specifically organises women's subordination through um, kind of commercial mechanisms, sort of you know philosophical guise of contract, social contract. And that means that, from a radical feminist point of view, um, any kind of transacted forms of male sexual violence, be it prostitution, be it surrogacy, be it pornography, those kinds of transacted forms of male sexual violence um, have particular saliency under liberal liberal forms of patriarchy. And so, yeah, thinkers like Carol Pateman and Catherine McKinnon kind of focus on that area of how men's men manage to. Achieve social dominance over women. And so that's, yeah. So I sort of kind of apply that thinking in the loosest of possible ways to analyzing Japanese history. And so I wrote a book about how the contemporary Japanese state had a formation period whereby the state, there's a liberal state in the post war, organized populations of women specifically for white collar working men. And that's how they managed to sort of stabilize the liberal state after a period of militarism, after a period of fascism. after a period of very intensified kind of capitalistic um, development so yeah i don't don't think i'm answering your question at all beth there but uh, that's sort of my history so i'm very much focused on japanese language and japanese history and radical feminism (laughs) right so
0: what was it that inspired you to study influential feminist activists from japan's contemporary feminist movement
1: yes so the book that's right so uh recently me and a colleague uh, named Emma Dalton at Latrobe University co-authored yeah the book that you mentioned there, Beth. Thank you very much for mentioning it. Um, Voices from the Contemporary Japanese Feminist Movement, uh, published by Palgrave Macmillan last year. If yeah, if listeners would like to to read that, please go ahead and have a look at it. The book, yeah, the the genesis of the book was our frustration and resentment, as always, um, reactionary kind of feeling against the existing conversation about uh, feminism in Asia, but more specifically Japan, what tends to happen, at least in the academic world, is that the minute that feminism comes to be discussed in relation to Japan, it becomes a a matter of culture and literature and text and discourse instead of politics. So when people talk about politics, as far as we could see, when people talk about politics in Japan, for example, grassroots locally, sort of radical tinged politics at the grassroots, then they'd always go for something like the Okinawan anti-base movement and even women's role within that movement or the anti-nuclear power, post-Fukushima disaster kind of grassroots uh, environmental movement. And there's nothing wrong with analysing those movements. They are that they have their radical elements and very interesting elements and certainly women are well and surely part of them, that's for sure. But the the vehicles by which anyone ever talked about feminism in Japan, as far as we could see, was if they weren't talking about those social movements, then they were talking about women in Japan in terms of their literary representation or their pop culture representation. So things like boy love, manga, kind of comic book, culture popular culture or cosplay the kind of Japanese dress up costumes sort of culture and all of these pop cultural manifestations and women's role in those or women's representation in those etc etc so it becomes straight away a very culturally kind of guised phenomenon if they talk about feminism in Japan if they do and what we wanted to do instead was to Engage with Japanese women as political actors and engage with the Japanese feminist movement as a political phenomenon. And there were barriers to doing that because the Japanese, the feminist movement in Japan, as it exists in practical terms, is very small. It's not yet had the kind of radicalization that the feminist movement has had in South Korea, for example. And there's lots of hangover problems from the post war, things like particularly the older generation of women who are excellent, the older generation of women have kind of put on, overlaid the contemporary feminist movement with feelings of guilt and kind of scapegoating for this, for, for the supposed involvement of women in Japan's militarization and various forms of post-war oppression of Asian women in Asian countries. Um, personally, I, I think that's a wrong tact. And I don't think it's right. I think women in Japan have shown themselves to be very different from their male countrymen, actually. But nonetheless, they've kind of got these hangover feelings of guilt in relation to Asia, but kind of ironically, women in Asia, the position of women in other Asian countries has grown far to exceed that of women in Japan. And women in Japan, by all measure, have sort of been stuck in this Sort of very lowly position in their society in terms of their status relative to men. For example, the gender pay gap is still about 50, coming up to nearly 50%. They're generally locked out of any type of management position in the employment, in the work uh, the labour market. Their numbers at the top universities are about a quarter, so they're effectively kept out of top university enrolments. Um, lo- there's lots of things I could mention. Uh, anyway. So we wanted to, the long-winded way of saying that we wanted to actually produce a book that engaged with Japanese women as political actors, successful or not, that wasn't the, the, the standard that we tried to, to meet. It was more about interviewing them about their political lives, about their engagement with political organisations, about their political goals, and to have the whole book actually about to give readers an idea of Japanese women as, as political actors instead of this constant Narrative that Japanese women fall into the the category of culture. So, so we, yeah, so we ended up interviewing six feminist women. So, these, I suppose, if we had any criteria, it was that the women had to call themselves feminists and understand themselves as such, and that as far as possible, they had to be involved in some kind of feminist organization, even small or a few organizations, and that they had to have some level of continuity over time in terms of their involvement in in feminism. So we achieved that through the six women that we interviewed. So, yeah, so it might, you know, it's it's not much in terms of, you know, we didn't exactly break new ground with the book, but actually the book is significant because it represents one of the, (laughs) believe it or not, one of the only attempts to engage with Japanese women wholly and solely as political actors. And so we excluded academics on that basis as well.
0: All right that's yeah that's really interesting yeah i think a lot of people don't realize what's actually going on in japanese culture but that's that's a real shock only only a, a 25% of women getting into the top universities that's quite shocking isn't it
1: yeah the numbers the numbers describe japanese women's status in all sorts of terrible ways um things like i think only 1.8 percent of women giving birth are given any type of painkiller thing and that's that's recognized and this is from the scientific medical literature by the way um so that's recognized within the science and medicine community worldwide as sort of astoundingly low and there's lots of papers that are produced as to why that's the case there's lots of yeah i mean there's a million different things like they so in japan women are murdered at higher rates than men, which you might say, well, that's the case for every country, but no, actually, at least in the Western world, men are actually murdered at higher rates than women in numbers, terms of numbers. Of course, everyone's murdered by men, (laughs) but in in fact, in Japan, it's actually in absolute terms women are murdered at higher rates than men, which means, says something about the society, um, you know, not that we want anyone to be murdered, but yeah, that's, that's another anomaly for Japan. Yeah, there's just so many statistics I could, yeah, give to... And I suppose the major problem is that there's different from countries like Korea or China where there's a bit of hope on the horizon. I think in Japan nobody would say there's hope on the horizon at this particular stage in history, yeah, for various reasons.
0: Now, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Radical Philosophy and I'm speaking with Dr. Carolyn Norma about influential feminist activists from Japan's contemporary feminist movement. So could you tell us about the six feminist activists that were interviewed in your book?
1: I can. So these women uh, were already known to me and the other co-author of the book, Emma Dalton, to some extent, but not necessarily, you know, on a a day-to-day basis. We did know of them and they knew of us um, and and their activities. So we chose uh, first of all, or we are invited first of all, um, a woman called Minori Kitahara, um, Minori Kitahara is very central to current developments in Japan's feminist movement with the Me Too wave that hit, um, America and the Western world, um, around about 2017. And a similar wave of feminism hit South Korea also from 2016 onwards. And, um, Minori Kitahara was involved in that because she connected to feminists in Korea. And so she kind of, um, was involved in propelling the Me Too wave in Japan as well. And the way she did this was to start what was called um, Flower Speak Out. So the the idea of it was to bring along a flower, like a, a, um, a picked flower or a bought real flower um, in your hand and come to a certain place uh, in the major cities of all Japanese prefectures around the country on a certain day of the month, once a month, and to have women come forward well initially the idea was to have speakers the pre-scheduled speakers at the front talking about feminist topics or their experiences of surviving those kind of things but as it happened what happened um from the very first event that was held in tokyo was that women came forward as survivors to talk about their experiences of um you know sexual violence and violation um one after the other so the event was scheduled for an hour and it just went on for hours and hours because of the line of women lining up to uh, testify to their own experiences in front of the crowd, um, which is kind of unbelievable in Japan because it, the culture is uh, a very suppressive one, and also um, very strong uh, norms of decorum uh, in, in, in society overall. That I think, yeah, I think that can be called culture, whether it's political or culture, I don't know. But um, yeah, the idea of people speaking out in front of the crowd. Uh, spontaneously, is uh, fairly unknown, but that happened in Japan. And so those uh, speak outs have been continuing ever since then. And Kitahara-san um, was involved in that. She also runs a business. Uh, it, on its surface, it's about, um, you know, so-called sex toys. Um, I have reservations about that, the nature of that business, but um, she has transform business bit by bit into more of a media company. It's got kind of podcasts and sort of video sort of programs and things with women and other kind of feminist types of initiatives. They've got a commercial edge to them, but, yeah, more and more. I mean, there's lots to say about um, Minori is She's an extremely good feminist in many, many ways. Um, so, yeah, that's just, just one of the – so she's the first uh, chapter. Uh, the second woman is a woman called Yamamoto Jun, who was uh, led – an organization called Spring, and the whole and sole uh, reason for the existence of this organization was to achieve amendments to Japan's sex offenses laws to improve them in various ways. And she was successful in doing so through her organization. Uh, Japan's sex offenses laws are still, still, uh, are in still need of a lot of reform. Anyone would say that, even Japanese feminists in the country today. Uh, but she was the first person, I think, in 110 years to or her and her organisation to to lobby uh, well enough and smartly enough to get a few improvements on that front. So we hear about her story in the second chapter. And then the third chapter is a woman called Nito Yumeno, and she runs an organisation called Kolabo Colabo in Tokyo. She's the youngest of the six women uh, featured in the book, and her organisation is one of outreach to teenage girls in the sex industry in Tokyo. And hopefully from now on in other cities as well. Uh, Nito Yumeno is probably the one of the best known feminists in Japan now, mainly because of all the trouble that her organization has encountered in attempting to do outreach work on the street, streets of Tokyo to the girls. Cause a lot of the sex industry connected men and the buyers, um, you know, stage like really serious, um, interventions against the organization and they lobby. So the organization gets funding from various Tokyo prefectural governments, Tokyo ward governments, and so they lobby for their funding to be taken away. And so, yeah, uh, yeah, Nito is one of yeah the hardest, sort of hard bitten feminists uh, in Japan at the moment. And then, fourth is Tsunoda Yukiko, who was the eldest um, feminist uh, featured in the book. So, she's been a lawyer since uh, the ni- early 1980s and worked. Early on, with the Tokyo Rape Crisis Centre, which is an organisation that still exists, uh, mainly representing women in court against, uh, uh, representing women in, in civil cases for damages against their employers for crimes of sexual harassment at work. Um, and so, Yukiko is known by everyone in, in Japan in feminist circles and even overseas as well so she studied with Catherine McKinnon uh, in the United States for a short time as well and so she yeah, theorizes legal approaches to um, you know feminist initiatives uh, for improvement in laws um, particularly in, in the civil civil area of law uh, for women in Japan uh, She she's aligned with many different feminist organizations even now and represents many different women in many, many areas so she was great to talk to. She, personally, I have the most connection with Sunoda-san. And then, uh, fifth was Mitsui Mariko, who is a long-time, uh, feminist, uh, politician at the prefectural and local city levels. But not the national level, but prefectural, Tokyo prefecture and, uh, various, uh, city prefectures in Japan. Uh, over decades, she was, uh, a politician. And now works with an organisation that attempts to increase rates of female representation in Japan's um, parliament, in various government bodies and parliaments. And because obviously Japan has a big problem with female representation in politics, and so she yeah lobbies parties to implement you know quotas um, and other types of initiatives to try and improve numbers. Um, Tsuimatako was also involved in. Um, an anti-prostitution group that meets every few months as well and stages protests and um, study sessions about uh, abolitionist ideas about prostitution, feminist abolitionism. And yeah, and so she's involved in lots of areas, important areas, even today. And finally is Young Tinja. This woman is a long, so decade-long feminist career in Japan, is known by everyone, but she's known mostly in areas uh, representing the living survivors of the Japanese military sexual slavery scheme of the Second World War. So, there were a few survivors of Korean background. So, Young Tinja also speaks Korean. She's a bilingual Japanese Korean speaker. And so, she was involved in court, civil court cases against the Japanese government supporting uh, survivors of wartime sexual slavery here in Japan, all of which, of course, lost in terms of any type of compensation to be paid. But the court cases in themselves were extremely important. And so, Young Tinja today operates an organization or contributes to an organization um, that uh, facilitates young Japanese women to travel to South Korea to meet with feminists there and, and organize joint activities. So uh, yeah, it, they're the six women in the book. It was fascinating for us to interview them and each one of course we interviewed over you know our, 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 an hour or three hours or more and to hear the overlaps between each of them. So they talk about each other and they talk about each other's organisations and various historical times at which they've sort of interacted with other groups and feminists. And So, yeah, the, the book overall, it, there's some cohesion to it, even though it's six individual interviews with six women, there's lots of um, yeah connections between them that are kind of shown in historic, historical perspective, I think the book. So I hope, yeah, if anyone has a chance to read it, that they might get some sense of not only the contemporary movement, but how, how we got here today.
0: What were some
1: of the major themes that were sort of overlapped? Surprisingly, the major one was um, action and philosophical objections to sexual exploitation, believe it or not. So coming from Australia, obviously many listeners will know that in Australia we happen to be a country in which ideas of prostitution as a fundamental harm and a you know commercially transacted form of sexual violence so those ideas generally don't exist even among people of radical politics and instead obviously Australia has a very long history of attributing free will and agency and ideas of work to people who are prostituted Um, but sometimes I wonder whether You know, political people in Australia quite realize just how unique that is in the world, believe it or not. And actually, when you come to even a place like Japan, in which the sex industry is is massive, uh, on many fronts, it has, it has actually a, a, you know, domestic pornography industry of substantial size, which is actually unusual. Uh, plus, of course, a very substantial sex industry, plus these kind of adjacent industries like the, the comic book industry, the manga is very involved in producing, um, pornographic, infest representations and things like that. I mean, they're a very major player uh, in terms of, you know, sex industry promotion within the country. But even in a country like this, uh, there is a a substantial understanding amongst the left, Um, maybe not the wider society, but certainly in left circles, you're more likely to hear of prostitution as a harm than you are to hear of prostitution as work, which I think is very different from Australia. And so across all the six... Not, not every woman, uh, discussed prostitution, sexual exploitation, uh, but if they did, it was very much a discussion that was sort of in line with that kind of theme that sexual exploitation was crucial to the idea of sexual harassment in employment, for example, crucial to teenage girls on the streets of Tokyo, crucial to obviously the, uh, the comfort women, Japanese military sexual slavery scheme. So that, that was one theme. Uh, the other theme obviously is that women are losing in Japan. So the activists, I mean, they devoted, literally sacrificed their lives over decades. Not all of them, but most of the majority of the women had and actually sustained like, quite serious um, sacrifices as a result in relation to things like employment, obviously the social circles, they'd lost them. The very, in various ways, these women had actually sustained harm as a result of devoting their lives to the feminist cause in Japan. Even with that, they still, when we interviewed them across all six, we were still able to say, you know, comprehensively, we are losing, we have lost uh, in Japan in terms of women's status um, and in terms of achieving anything like the kinds of reforms that we would have needed at this point in history to, to say that, that we'd sort of improved the lives of Japanese women. So there was no hope um, that the women couldn't point to anything on the horizon that... That looked like it would make the difference in terms of the direction they were going in. Um, so it wasn't. I'm not saying that pessimism was a theme, but it also there wasn't uh, there wasn't a theme of kind of look on the bright side, glass half full, that kind of that that, that also which I thought was quite interesting because often you speak to political people and they're you know, intent on making sure that you think that you know games have been made and. That but that that wasn't there. Um, yeah, for the minute, they're the two things that come to mind through the book. Hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? I suppose listeners sort of might wonder about this kind of stereotype about white women coming in from the for the west and making comment upon <laughs> um, <laughs> foreign feminist movements. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, listeners can make their <laughs> their own judgments about these things, but. It, I don't know, maybe more than people might think. Um, people like Emma and me, obviously we're both involved in grassroots social movements, in, uh, you know, feminist groups in Japan on a regular basis. We're, we're not, um, obviously we are outsiders, um, but we're very much known outsiders. And, you know, over many years, they just, you know, people here, political people, feminists here tend to know us. Um, but even with that, um the feminists that we spoke to and the groups that we we know are crying out actually, for solidarity and support and interaction with foreign feminists. Um now most of that does come from Korea, to be sure. South Korea, there are very very strong links between feminists between Japan and South Korea. But not only that, I mean even English language speakers or you know speakers from any other countries, it's not like this kind of, I know there's some kind of bias sometimes amongst political people that, you know, you can't go in and impose upon, you know, your own ideas upon other political movements and you can't. But on the other hand, you can't also, you know, shy away from, you know, acts of solidarity, I think, with those people abroad. And certainly, you know, I've come to learn that through feminists in Japan that there's this constant, um, you know, desire to interact and sh- share ideas and strategies and, knowledge about what's going on in other countries, especially with the gender identity movement, you know, moving at such a pace now that understanding developments abroad and how they've been engaged with by feminists in other countries, is actually, you know, gives them the, the the jump on kind of how politics might happen in other countries as well. So, yeah, I just encourage if anyone, you know, is able to or feels moved to, please do sort of jump in boots and all, I think, in terms of the political scenes in other countries, because there's lots to be learned on both sides. Yeah, definitely. So do you have any future studies within this field? Um, I'd like to, in Japan, there's a very big bias, and I think this exists in English-speaking countries as well, about what the pre-war feminists achieved and what they were like and who they were. Um, So the constant... Um, criticism of our four sisters, whether they were conservative or Christian or racist or, you know, a number of other types of things, Um, and this is the case in Japan too. So Japan had a very big, like in terms of global terms, nobody would realise it now, but actually Japan in the pre-war was a major abolitionist country. It had a major anti-prostitution movement that achieved very major things. Even relative to the countries of Europe, Josephine Butler and that. Um, but if you mention that to feminists contemporary feminists in Japan today, straight away they'll tell you, oh no, 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 we can't talk about them. They were um, conservative, I think they usually tell me or they, or they had nefarious kind of intent for how prostituted women should be treated. So we don't do that anymore. And so you know this kind of story. and, and certainly elements of that story could are true and yeah are true. However, looking into the actual history of the abolitionists in pre-war Japan, which I'm doing now, um, you know, it tells an entirely different story. These people, you know, sacrificed. They got beaten up um, actually going into the sex industry districts of various places and attempting to, you know, engage with women. Uh, They they were extraordinary. They did extraordinary things. So my current project is to investigate just how extraordinary Japan's pre-war abolitionist movement was. So thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks so much, Beth. I really appreciated you
0: having me on. And I've been speaking with Dr Carolyn Norma about influential feminist activists from Japan's contemporary feminist movement. Well, that's all we have time for. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought.